The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. If you look in the bulletin, there are a number of things you heard the announcements before you. Impact is coming up. Our young people leave for camp this afternoon, and uh, then we'll be throughout the cities in central Texas uh, this week, and also in the area of children's ministries, uh, a number of the slots in the bulletin have been filled up, but we still have some needs in that area. It's a great opportunity for you to step up over the summer months and be a uh, servant of the summer and uh, to help us with kids' ministries. Uh, you can look around the room. God has blessed us with a lot of folks and a lot of kiddos, so it's a great opportunity for us to minister to them and care for them at their own level. If you have your Bibles, you can look on the outline you received when you came in. We're going to be doing a new series this summer called Jesus Is, and we're going to be all over the place, but eventually uh, I'll have you look at me, look with me at uh, Mark chapter 2. So we'll eventually get there. Most of this will be in the PowerPoint in front of you as we skip various places in the Scriptures today, and then in the weeks ahead we'll focus on specific areas of Scripture. Let's pray together. Father, every day is a gift, and we thank you for the gift of today. And as the gospel is preached in our communities in Central Texas, as it's preached around the world, we pray it will go forth with might and power. We pray that hearts will be changed, Father, among the nations today. We pray that Jesus is lifted up in pulpits around the world. Father, we pray one day in glory we'll meet folks who came to know you on this day because of the gospel. So today... Lord, as we open the Word and as we spend the summer looking at who our Savior is, would you teach us, would you empower us, would you change us? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. When Jesus turned to Peter in Matthew chapter 16 and asked the question, who do you say that I am? He asked Peter the most important question a person could ever be asked. Who do you say that I am? Not what do the population believe I am, not what do other people think that I am, not what does the folks around me, who do the folks around believe who I am, but who do you think that I am? And this summer, we're going to ask you that question this hour, and then we're going to fill in the blank the rest of the summer. And so the question before us this morning is, who do you say that Jesus is? Here's a quick video, a man on the street interviews with a number of folks who were asked that question uh, recently. And so watch this and watch some of these responses. your opinion. Who is Jesus? See, now, see, now you won't start trouble. It's a myth created by man in order to control society. I don't, I don't consider Jesus my savior or my spiritual leader. He is a spiritual leader and right. one of the spiritual leaders I learned from. Who is Jesus in Who your opinion? Who was he? Who was, Who was he? He was a man. He was a man, okay. Absolutely. Your opinion? Jesus is, in my opinion, yeah. he's everything around here. He's spiritual, everything, earth, water, fire, everything. Jesus is all that's good, all the things that are positive and affirmative in life. Uh, that's Jesus. I believe he's a higher power in the form of a man. Everyone else walking around, there's not another Jesus, there's just one. So, yeah, I believe he definitely did something. Yeah, uh, like on. Jesus like, is not a person. He's not a person, okay? Okay. So, do you believe he was a man or just like some higher power or. No, I don't believe in. Don't believe he even no. existed? No. Okay? No. Thank you. 
Jesus is um, our savior. Jesus is everything. He's the reason why we live. He's the reason why um, we get to do the things that we do in life. He's my heart and he's what I speak through my poetry, through my work, through my everyday life. That's Jesus. Who's Jesus? Higher power? Spiritual being? A man? Someone who was? A mystery character? Someone who was mythical and invented by others? Who's Jesus? That's the most important question you'll ever answer in life. That the most important question you'll ever be asked and the most important question you'll answer. You see, over the years, uh, various groups have said Jesus was man but not God, and other groups have said, well, he was God but not man. And you see various groups responding in different ways. Way back in the, first, in the second and third centuries, there were a number of folks, uh, the Docetists, the Gnostics, who believed anything physical, anything that was matter, anything that material was bad. And so Jesus was some type of a spirit. So he lived on earth and he walked on earth and he was God, but he was not fully man. He was some type of mystical being, some type of spirit. The Apollinarians believed he was not fully man, only partially man. They didn't specify which part of him was man, but they said not all of them could be man. And then you fast forward to our day and age, and there are groups that believe, well, he was a man, but he's certainly not God. If you read about the teachings of the Jehovah Witness, the Mormons, you read the teachings of Unitarian, Scientology, the teachings of Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, they all believe Jesus was either a created being less than the Father, or they all believe that uh, he was a good moral teacher, a great prophet, and a good man. But none of them believe that he was God in the flesh, created and became God, perhaps. And so the question that begs to be answered to this morning that we're going to look at is, who is this man? Who is Jesus? And so this morning we're going to look at both his humanity and his deity. His humanity. Was he truly a human and his deity, was he truly God? And that's a, something we as those living in the midst of a postmodern generation, as we're surrounded by those who are skeptics, and some of you perhaps came for this series because you are skeptical. We're going to let the word of God as well as history teach us about who Jesus was. So who was he? Well, if he was human, and by the way, if you want to read about the differences and what uh, different folks believe, here's a book I'd encourage you to pick up and have in your library. It's an easy read. It compares evangelical Christianity with the major religions of the world as well as sects of Christianity. It's called So What's the Difference by Fritz Ridenauer. Easy book to read. It's got a little table in each chapter, and it's very valuable. Well, let's talk about the humanity of Christ. Was Jesus truly a man? Well, to be a man, he had to have a human body. And to have a human body, the first thing that happened was he's born. And that may sound quite simple and quite elementary, but there are those who would dispute that and would say, well, he was a spirit being. Well, if you go to the scriptures in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, it says, she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. I guarantee you, how many of you are mamas out there? Uh, your mama. I guarantee you, if you went to Mary and asked her, was Jesus human? Uh, she would answer just as you would if we asked if your baby was human. She was there, gone through the delivery process. She was there giving birth to Jesus. I guarantee you, Mary could answer that question for us. Jesus did not drop in from outer space like some alien. He was not delivered by some Stark in spite of what you may believe about Starks. Uh, There's a great story about a young boy who was at his computer composing a report for his class. Uh, He was uh, lost for an appropriate introduction. He was writing on his family. So without warning, he ran to his mom who was in the kitchen fixing supper. And uh, he looked at her and said, Mom, how was I born? 
And the mom was not quite ready to talk to him about the facts of life. And so she put him off and she said, why, son, the Stark brought you. And uh, he saw his grandmother in the living room. And so he went there and he said, grandma, how did my mom come into the world? And of course, grandma wasn't about to touch that question with a 10-foot pole. And she said, uh, why, a Stark brought your mom. And grandma, how'd you come? Well, Stark brought me too, honey, not wanting to touch that question with a 10-foot pole. He's went back to his computer and he typed, there's not been a normal birth in our family for three generations. <laughs> Jesus was born. I mean, he was born. His birth is recorded for us throughout the Gospels. There are those today who would say without question, you can read wherever you want to read. The fact that Jesus was a man who walked on the earth, was part of history, is quite evident from secular history as well as biblical history. Another thing, on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, uh, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. And uh, all I'm going to say is you can't circumcise a spirit being, and I'm not going to go any further with that. So Jesus was a human. He had a body. He was born. He was circumcised. He also grew. The scriptures teach us in Luke chapter 240, and the child referring to Jesus grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. You would expect if he was a human being that there was growth in his life and that's exactly what happened. He grew not only in the other ways mentioned, wisdom and stature, but in favor with God and man, but he grew strong as well. And so what we see is that he grew in evidence of him being a man. In fact, later on in his life, you can jot down Matthew 13, 35, the crowds are looking at him and said, is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not the son of Mary and on his brother so-and-so and his sister so-and-so? And so Jesus was one who had a human body. The first evidence of his humanity is that he had a human body. He was born, he grew. He also exhibited characteristics of a man, of a human being. First of all, he was hungry. I mean, there's a time in the scriptures we read after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, he was hungry. Yeah, I read that and think after 40 minutes of fasting, <laughs> I'm hungry. I started a new diet a couple of weeks ago. I call it the cardiologist diet. If it tastes good, spit it out. <laughs> Jimmy Fallon said this. He said, a whale swims all day, only eats fish, only drinks water is what they tell you to do in a diet. And a whale is filled with blubber and fat. A rabbit runs and hops all day long and only lives 15 years. A tortoise doesn't run, doesn't exercise, eat whatever it wants and lives 150 years. <laughs> you figure that out. He, he was hungry. He was also fatigued. It says in the scriptures about Jesus, this is John chapter 4, his encounter with the woman at the well. Jacob's well was there. Jesus was what? Tired. And evidence that he was a man. He was tired. He had a body like we had. He, he was walking and he came to Samaria and he was tired and he wanted something to drink and he sat by the well. He, was also, he also cried. An evidence of his humanity would be that he cried. The shortest verse in the Bible is, well, everybody has one Bible verse memorized. What is it? Jesus wept. You all think you're biblical scholars and I see you got it. Well, get a verse memorized. You got that in John 3.16. You got them both down. So there you go. Jesus wept, John 11. 35. He displayed emotions. He displayed emotions. Shows his humanity. He was also angry when he went in the cleanse of temple. It says he was angry. He was joyful. They accused him of being a drunkard at times because he was so joyful. Uh, he hurt. He sweat drops of blood when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus had emotions. By the way, it shows us that emotions are not sinful. And some of you say, I'm German. I'm Czech. I don't show emotions. I'm just... 
emotions are not sinful. A number of years ago, I had a lady who was at TBC for a short amount of time, and she came to me and she said, uh, Pastor, I want you to know I'm not staying. So I said, tell, tell me what's up. You figure it's a theological issue or something with who knows what. And she said, uh, you use too many jokes. Y'all laugh too much. That's too joyful at that church. <laughs> I put a big smile on my face and said, guilty, <laughs> guilty. Jesus was joyful. Paul says in Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. There are too many believers whose face look like the frontispiece of the book of Lamentations. And the scriptures say we are to be joyful believers. So we look at this, and Jesus had emotions. Emotions are not sinful. Emotions are that which we are to do, which we are to display appropriately. He also thirsted. Uh, you remember when Jesus was on the cross, one of the sayings from the cross is, later knowing that everything had been fulfilled, Jesus, so the scriptures might be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. He thirsted and was given a drink. See, evidence after evidence of his humanity. One author writes this regarding his humanity. When the Son of God stepped down from his throne to become a man, the finest of heaven's wines funneled itself into the common earthen vessel of a Palestinian Jew. That's a great statement. Look at that. When the Son of God stepped down from his throne to become a man, he left heaven's throne to become a man. The finest of heaven's wines. The finest found itself in an earthen vessel, a Palestinian Jew. Jesus was fully man. He was 100% man, just as we are. And when we look at the scriptures, there's evidence after evidence after evidence. You look at uh, just secular history, there's evidence that Jesus was a man. So the question is, why? I mean, why become a man? He could have come as a superhero. He could have come as a spirit being. He could have, but, but that's not that he didn't. Why? Let me give you two reasons why Jesus became a man. Not on the outline. Two reasons why he became a man. Number one, first and foremost, comes out of Mark ten forty five. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came and became a man, came as a man, as the ultimate sacrifice for us. You see, for centuries, Jews had brought animals to worship, but now the Son of God, in bodily form, would offer himself as the ultimate sacrifice. And to do so, he had to have a body. And so he came, and he gave his life as a ransom for the many. A number of years ago, there was a skeptic rancher. His wife was a believer. His two sons were believers, but he was not. On Christmas Eve, they invited him to attend church with them, and he refused, as he always did. He did it politely. It was a raw winter night, and as he was sitting by the fireplace, just staring into it and reading, he, 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 he heard an irregular thumping sound against the window where he was sitting. He, he heard thump after thump, and he turned around, and he saw uh, five or six birds that were attracted to the light from the fireplace in his living room, and they, they hit the window time after time after time, and he was disconcerted, and so he bundled himself up. He trudged through the snow to open the barn for the struggling birds. He turned on lights inside his barn. He tossed some hay in a corner. He sprinkled a trail of saltine crackers directly to the barn from the picture window. But when he had gone outside, the birds had scattered a thousand different ways. He could see them roosting and resting in trees, but he tried all kinds of tactics. He circled behind the birds, trying to drive them towards the barn. He tossed cracker crumbs into the air, hoping to get their attention and, and direct them towards the barn. But they only fluttered around, and then they would land in the trees once again. Nothing worked. He was a huge alien creature who had terrified the birds, and they couldn't understand that he was there to help him. 
Despairingly, he went back into the living room. He sat there. He heard the thumping on the window again. And as he was sitting there, he's thinking, if only I could become a bird, become one of them just for a moment, and I could lead the way and fly into the barn, and then they would be warm and safe. At that moment, it dawned on him. His wife and kids were celebrating the incarnation of Christ. That's exactly what he wanted to be for those birds. He wanted to become one of them so that he could lead them to safety. That's exactly what our Savior did for us. He became one of us so he could give himself as a sacrifice. Jesus had to become a man. Secondly, he became a man not only to be our sacrifice, but secondly, to identify with us. Hebrews chapter 4 says that uh, Jesus became man so that, and I don't have it on PowerPoint, I'll read it to you. He is our excellent high priest, and he became one of us so that he might identify with us. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things just as we are. And so he came not only to offer himself as a sacrifice, but he came to display that he was one of us. One author writes these words. He says, Jesus has been there. He experienced all the pain, all the testing. He was angry enough to purge the temple, hungry enough to eat raw grain, distraught enough to weep in public, fun-loving enough to be called a drunkard, winsome enough to attract kids, weary enough to sleep in a storm-bounced boat, poor enough to sleep on the dirt and borrow a coin for a sermon illustration, radical enough to get kicked out of town, responsible enough to care for his mother, tempted enough to know the smell of Satan, and fearful enough to sweat blood. But why? Why would heaven's finest son endure earth's toughest pain? So you would know that he is able to run to the cry of those who are being tempted. That's what Hebrews 4 says, tested and tried. Whatever you're facing, he knows what you feel. Jesus came to offer him in bodily form, to offer himself as a sacrifice and to identify with us. He was truly human. He was 100% God and 100% man. There's an argument about the nationality of Jesus among two men. One was Italian, one was Jewish. I can relate to the Italian guy, obviously. The one guy said, I'm Italian. I tell you, Jesus was Italian. He talked with his hands. He loved olive oil and bread. I mean, that's where he was in the Middle East, and he had wine with every meal. I tell you, he's Italian. And the Jewish guy said, no, he's Jewish. I can prove it to you. First, he went into his father's business. Secondly, he lived at home until he was 33. And thirdly, his mother thought he was God. He was Jewish. He had a human body. Was he God? I I mean, did Mary think that? Obviously she did, but was he truly God? It's pretty evident he was human. I mean, we just gave you the evidence of that. And the next question is, was he God? Bishop Mule said this, a savior not quite God is like a bridge broken at the furthest end. See, if Jesus is not God and he's only a man, his death couldn't have done anything for us. His sacrifice on the cross was not sufficient for us. The grace that we've experienced and received is not enough. But if he's truly a man and truly God, the only 200% person who've ever existed, the God-man, then his sacrifice is always adequate, his grace is always enough, and he identifies with us fully. So his deity, is he God? That's the question before us. So if he was God, there are certain things that must happen. First of all, he must possess the attributes that only God has. He must possess those attributes. I've listened for you in the bulletin. First of all, he is eternal. He is eternal. 
In John chapter 8, Jesus is having a dialogue with the, with the Jewish leaders. He said, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And they said, you're not 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said, truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. When Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am, their minds, the mind of every Jewish man and woman there, especially the men who had studied the scriptures over and over, and Pharisees and Sadducees, would race back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where Moses was asking, God, if I go, who am I going to say sent me? And you remember his response? Moses, I am who I am has sent you. The Hebrew word Yahweh. When Jesus responded to the Jewish leaders and said, before Abraham was born, I am, they heard those words, I am. And when they heard those words, they knew what he was claiming. He was claiming deity. How do I know that? Because of what they did next. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Why did they pick up stones to stone him? They picked up stones to stone him because they recognized he was claiming to be one with the Father. Leviticus 24, 16, you can take a look at it later, talks about stoning someone for blasphemy. Jesus was claiming to be God. The Jewish leaders understood that. When you have folks that tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God, just direct them to John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, it's very clear. Jesus says, I am. You're telling us before, you're not even 50 years old and you saw Abraham and he says, I am. I am the pre-existent eternal one. That's what Jesus is saying. I have always been. And that's what the word I am means. So Jesus is saying his, the attribute he possesses is that he is eternal. He's also omniscient. Omniscient. The word omniscient means all-knowing. Some of you are saying, I've got a teenager like that. Some of you are saying, I'm married to a person like that, all-knowing. Reminds me of the lady who said, I married Mr. Wright. I just didn't know his first name was always. <laughs> Anybody married to that person? Don't raise your hand. Okay. Jesus knew what they were thinking. You see, if Jesus is God, he would have to possess attributes that only God had. Being omniscient means he's all-knowing. Jesus knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the shriveled up hand, get up in front of these guys, and he heals a guy on the Sabbath. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. Jesus was omniscient. He was all-knowing. Not only that, he was omnipotent, 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 all-powerful, all-powerful. There are many examples of that in the scripture. Luke chapter 8. In Luke chapter 8, it's quite interesting. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat. They set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped. They were in great danger. The disciples woke him saying, master, master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. He rebuked them. These twin sons of his the waves and the waters, the wind and the waters. He rebukes them and they stop it. The rough housing stops. And he looks at the disciples and says, where's your faith? Jesus is in the bow of the boat. There are 12 sets of eyes scared to death. And I remind you, a majority of these guys were fishermen. They're scared to death. And Jesus says, where's your faith? By the way, he's just fed 5,000 people on the seashore. Where's your faith? In fear and amazement, they ask one another, who is this that commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Their fear was transferred from the 
water in the waves, or the waves in the wind, to the one who was standing before them. And their fear was, who is this man? Who is this man that wields power unlike any person who has ever had power? Who is this one that stands before us? He can't be a mere teacher or prophet or faith healer. He stands and he holds the main of nature in his grip. Who is this man? And they feared Jesus. Let me give you two quick applications when I read that section of God's word. First of all, Jesus is indeed the Son of God. He is the ruler of all nature. There's an old hymn that talks about Ferris, Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature. That's our Savior. He rules everything. And if he is the ruler of everything, our response should be one of worship. Should be one of worship. Secondly, when life storms come crashing over you, don't allow fear to weaken your faith. When life storms come crashing upon you, don't allow fear to weaken your faith. You know, as I observe the world we live in, we've got a lot of fearful people. It's an election year. I hear, I hear more talk about fear than, than I hear any, any other time. There's fear about what's going to happen and who's going to win and what's going to take place. I'm going to tell you, regardless of who wins, and certainly I have preferences like you do, but regardless of who wins, God is on his throne. He's not moving. Amen? One author writes this, Bill Hall says this, we're afraid of being alone, we're afraid of being unloved, we're afraid of being abandoned. When you're young, you're afraid of not fitting in. When you get older, you're afraid of fitting in. When we enter the workplace, we're afraid what we, we might not get the right job or that we can't perform once we get it. Many are afraid of marriage, some are fear, afraid they won't be good parents. We look ahead to retirement, but then we worry we won't have enough money. We fear growing older, we fear not being able to take care of ourselves, or we fear dying suddenly. We fear moving, we fear staying, we fear relationships, we fear rejection, fear. When the storms of life come crashing over you, it may be sexual temptation, disease, infidelity, job loss, maybe the storms of parenting, the storms of marital struggles, the storms of depression or discouragement. I don't know what storm is swamping you right now, if any. But if you feed those fears, your faith will diminish. If you feed your faith, those fears will diminish. Long as Peter had his eyes fixed on Jesus, he was walking on water. When he focused on the circumstances around him, what happened? He sunk. So where do you focus in the midst of the storms of life? What do you do? Where do you go? Israel was paralyzed. They were paralyzed at the Valley of Elah. I mean, they, they, nobody would do anything. Every single day, a guy, a giant named Goliath would walk out and belch insults at them. And everybody stood and watched. And all of a sudden, a shepherd boy with a slingshot and five stones shows up. And rather than focusing upon the giant who is Goliath, he focused upon the giant who is his God. And everybody else has said, he's so big, he's going to take us down. And David said, he's so big, I can't miss. And he did it because he knew God was on his side. If you look at Samuel, the book of Samuel, where David appears and does this, it says, because the mighty God of Israel has promised. And his focus wasn't upon Goliath or the five smooth stones or his might. His focus was on the God who made a promise that would happen. Twelve guys go in to spy out the promised land before David. 
And they come back and 10 of the guys said, they're giants in the land. We can't go in there. They're Nephilim there. They're, they're great people. It's a land indeed filled with milk and honey. But the reality of it, because of the great men in the fortified cities there, we can't go in. But two guys, Joshua and Caleb said, God said it. Let's go for it. So if you walk in fear and live in fear, the recognition is you've got to trust the one who overcomes fear through faith. And that's our God. So we look at Jesus and we see he possesses the attributes of God. He's eternal. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He, he would also need to perform works that only God does. And we can do a number of things. I'll just tell you that the one thing he does is he forgives sin. Remember the story of the paralytic who's carried into the house and they, they, his four friends bring him in and they, they, they kind of part the roof so they can lower their friend to Jesus. Remember what Jesus does? But when the guy is laid before him, what does Jesus do? He looks at him and says, what? Mark chapter 2. He looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. It's the first thing he does. And then the next thing, you can hear his buddies upstairs. I've used this 10 times at TBC over the years. I mean, you can see his buddies upstairs. Psst, psst, don't forget the legs. I mean, Jesus leapfrogs past the temporal to the eternal, and he looks at him and says, uh, your sins are forgiven. And then the scriptures say, to, to prove that what he said was true, he says to the guy, pick up your mat and walk. He, he says, you go. The scriptures say, which is harder? Well, the easiest thing is sins are forgiven. I mean, anybody can do this and say your sins are forgiven. Who knows? So to prove he was who he said he was, Jesus gives the man a set of legs. But it's quite interesting. When heaven was rejoicing, everybody didn't join in that dance. The Pharisees and Sadducees looked at him and they said, Jesus claims the power to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. Therefore, Jesus is claiming to be God. It's a syllogism that was right. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus claims to forgive sins. And so Jesus is claiming to be God. And that's exactly what happens when only God can forgive sins. Nobody else can do it. Secondly, he has power over demons, over disease and death. In Luke chapter 8, it's quite interesting. The scenario we just read about the storm and the, and the, the guys in the boat, it, they hit a whole nother storm when they hit the seashore. You remember who that was? It's the demoniac from the Gerasenes. This was a guy filled with a legion full of demons. And they look at this guy and he's a madman. He comes rushing at them and naked and, and he's got scars on his, on his wrist and scars everywhere from the things that he's done. And he's just an absolute madman. The disciples are scared to death of him and they, they just overcome one storm and now they meet another storm and Jesus had conquered the, the storm in nature. And now he goes to this guy and he casts, remember what he did? He cast all those demons out. Remember what he did with those demons? In the pigs. You know, the bad line there is at the first case, the deviled ham in the scriptures. That's a bad line right there. If you're younger, you have no idea what deviled ham is, actually. But, but the reality of it is those pigs go rushing over the, sea, over the cliff, and they end up in the, in the sea, and, and all these things are destroyed. And you know what's interesting? You know what happens to that guy? That guy goes back to the village and becomes a missionary. It's a cool story. Take a look at it, Luke chapter 8 sometimes. He's freed from all those demons. Jesus has the power over demons, over disease, and over death. He comes to the tomb of Lazarus and says, Lazarus, rise, and Lazarus comes to life. Over disease, if it's a leper, a blind man, a lame man, man with a shriveled hand, Jairus' son, Jairus, and a daughter, over and over, Jesus performed miracles. He did works that only God could do. Finally, he claimed to be God. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. 
The scriptures say, who has seen me has seen the Father. So if he was to be deity, he would possess attributes which only God has, which he did. He performed works which only God can do, which he did. And he claimed to be God, which he does. So here's the great proposition. If God became man, then certain things should happen. First of all, he would have an unusual entrance into the world. I mean, if God became man, he would have an unusual entrance into, the, entrance into the world. Did Jesus have an unusual entrance into the world? Duh. I mean, obviously he did. Virgin born. If God became man, he had an unusual entrance in the world. Secondly, if God became man, he would be without sin. He would be without sin. It's pretty interesting to me that two of the people who said Jesus without sin were Peter and John. Think about that for a second. Both of those men spent three years with Jesus. And both of them said he was without sin. This is Peter. He says, to those who are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you as an example that you should follow his footsteps, he committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Indeed, he entrusted himself to the one who judges. That's Peter saying those words. Then John said this, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him there was no sin. I submit to you that if anybody knew Jesus was a sinner, it was two of the guys who spent three years with him and watched him die and went around him the whole time. If anybody knew he sinned. So if God became man, he would have an unusual entrance into the world, he would be without sin, and then finally, he would be different than all other men. Or thirdly, he would be different than all other men. We can go all over the scriptures and we can see the same statement made, no one ever spoke the way this man does. People are amazed all the time. I mean, this is, these are pagan guards replying that nobody speaks like him. And fourthly and finally, actually Napoleon said this, I know men and I tell you, Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there's no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlie Mang, and myself have found empires, but upon what did these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire upon love, and to this very day, millions would die for him. So if God, became, if God entered the world, he would do so in an unusual way, be without sin, and be different than any other man, and finally have a lasting and universal impact. In Acts chapter 17, these men have caused trouble all over the world. That was in the first century. The impact Jesus has had since is evidenced just by the people in this room today. And if we were to go around the world, we would see people everywhere who name the name of Jesus. Jesus is the only God man. Jesus is the only person who is 100% God and 100% man. C.S. Lewis said this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept him as claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. If somebody walked around claiming to be God, we would say they're crazy. And then he goes on and says he would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or who he'd be a devil from hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is a son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his great human teacher, his being a great human teacher. 
He's not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. If you're a skeptic here today, Jesus doesn't let you stand on the continental divide and look both ways. You stand on the continental divide of history and you make a decision today. Either you trust him as God, the one who gave himself as a ransom for you, or you reject him. This summer, at the end of each message, those of us who are preaching, I'm up for the next few weeks, and whoever else is up, we're going to introduce you to TBCers and let you hear their story about who Jesus is to them. So would you welcome to the stage my friend Ruth Reddy? Ruth, where are you? Come and join me up here. Would you welcome Ruth? Worship team, would you guys come up? So Ruth is a dear friend. We live in the same neighborhood. Uh, Ruth and Dennis uh, do prison ministry regularly, and I've asked her if she would come. We were sitting on the back patio at our house about a month ago, and I'd never heard Ruth's full testimony, and when she gave it, I thought, um, I've got to have her share that. So to kick it off is Ruth. So Ruth, come and tell them about uh, how you met Jesus, a little bit about your life. Would you do that? Okay, sure will. Good morning. I'm proof to never give up on your unbelieving friends and family to come to the foot of the cross. I grew up going to church most Sundays with my mother, but never my father, because he was either working or drinking. When I was nine, my mom wanted me to be baptized, so I was. I went to church groups, I went to church camps, I went to Sunday school. I thought I was a Christian, but I never really got and understood the gospel message. When I went to college, I quit going to church. It interfered with my major, partying. (laughs) During the late 60s and early 70s, the saying was drugs, sex, rock and roll. That message I got and understood. I indulged in all three. I married and then struggled with infertility for many years. I thought God was mad at me and punishing me for all those years of drugs, sex, rock and roll. Because I couldn't get what I wanted, I divorced. A few years later, I married a wonderful man, my husband Dennis. When he retired, We moved from Albuquerque, New Mexico to Salado, Texas. We were going to do whatever we wanted to do. Right after we moved, a few months later, I should say, a new friend invited me to a Bible study. That was not on my list of things I wanted to do. (laughs) But I heard myself saying yes, and I remember hanging up the phone and saying, now how in the, am I going to get out of this? (laughs) Reluctantly, I ended up going. And the women there were reading their Bibles. They were even writing and marking in them. And then they prayed out loud. And it sounded as if they were talking to someone Through that study, loving godly neighbors, TBC, and Pastor Gary's teaching, 
I came to know the living, present Jesus. And I ask him to be my Lord and Savior. Amen. He changed my vulgar words to words of encouragement. He changed my cynicism to compassion. He changed my wanting to please people to wanting to please him. A few months later, Dennis became a believer too. We wanted to serve, and so we volunteered to teach second grade Sunday school. <laughs> I laugh because those seven and eight-year-olds taught us. We really had to dig into scripture to be prepared for class. Those Sunday mornings were really sweet blessings to us, and now we see those kids graduating from high school and college. About eight years ago, Dennis and I joined the Discipleship Unlimited prison ministry team. We go twice a week to Gatesville to tell about Jesus and his healing power. We have the privilege to tell the women there about his love, his forgiveness, his holiness, his grace, his mercy, and his hope. To tell them that he can and will rescue them from any situation like he rescued me at age 49. One of my favorite verses in scripture is 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, she is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Amen. Thank you, Ruthie. you hear Ruth's message? The message is Christ changes lives. Don't give up. Don't give up on that person you're praying for. So here's how I'd like to conclude the message. We're going to stand and we're going to worship together in song. I'll be in the back. I'll pray with you about anything you want to pray for. Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel that the 100% God, 100% man, Jesus, transforms and changes lives. Thank you for the testimony. In the name of Jesus, amen.